Welcome to Tech in the Right Direction, the podcast. This week, I'll be speaking with Leah Safina. Leah is a digital design director and Web3 strategist living in Honolulu, Hawaii. Through her work in blockchain innovation, Leah is building with a mission to help people get educated, connected, and empowered in Web3. She has established creative for Fortune 500 companies and startups alike. Nike, Google, Alibaba, Sotheby's, Street Easy, Brandless, and Coinbase, to name a few. Leah has experienced a variety of leadership scenarios from bootstrapping a startup to designing for future citizens of a city built by Toyota in Japan. Recognition closely followed, she was selected as a fellow at Estee Lauder's Vital Voices Leadership Program and awarded as Innovator of the Year by Falling Walls Conference in Berlin. Welcome to the show, Leah. I'm so excited to have you on. Um, thank you for having me. All right, let's get started. Um, so as a woman in tech, can you share with us your career journey and how you got to where you are today? Sure, and whenever I get asked this question, I always ask back, do you have five minutes or do you have five hours? <laughs> because, <laughs> well, you can tell us as much as you feel like, you know, I mean, we have time on this podcast. We have some questions, as you know, that I want to ask, but, you know, tell us what you think is appropriate. <laughs> sure, so um, my journey is on one hand, less typical but on the other hand I would like to recognize that a lot of journeys out there are very non-conventional mm -hmm. so I'm originally from Europe from Belarus and I was uh, academically trained as an architect mm. and uh, having worked as an architect for a couple of years I felt like this is not necessarily the best fit for me. I didn't feel the same rush of the twins when um, you go through a building that you help build. And I looked at education as an outlet and as a way to creatively feel that I'm really making a change in a specific person's life. And back in the day, I volunteered a lot with nonprofits. And at some point, I was invited to take part in this eight-month amazing research program in Moscow at Strelka Institute for Media, Architecture and Design. And what it is, is this really interesting and very different think tank. Um, it has people from all over the world come from different walks of life and different backgrounds from your politologists to your media people, to investors, to designers, to architects, of course, to journalists. And everybody comes together, 50 people a year, to create this amazing body of research on the topics defined that year. And so I came there to research education. I was extremely passionate about the subject. I wanted to know, can we speed the way, uh, speed up the way people learn? Um, and of course, that was the golden age of Coursera. That was almost 10 years ago now. Um, online education of massive open online courses were blooming and definitely the, the golden age to look at methodologies and how we teach people online and see what can be improved. And here's where my journey into digital starts. While on one hand, I was working with real people right in front of me in real life, um, trying to speed up their educational process and design different methodologies, uh, me and a few other people also decided to start an online learning course uh, on urban design um, and really help people understand how understanding the city and people's routines can help them start a successful business based on insights, based on anthropology. Um, and with that, this is, this is my wild journey. I, instead of just putting together a methodology for that course, I dove deep into user experience design, into all the different fun things that we could do. One of my favorite things that I did back then um, was imagine reading a page um, on the course that explains something very complex, say industrialization. And of course, a lot of terminology would be um, quite complicated, and if, especially if you use quotes from different experts. So what we did is we added this button uh, that said, go to the bar with an expert. And when you click it, all of the content on the page would simplify and be just if, it, if they were explaining to you like you were five years old. So it was really fun um, as if they went to the bar with you after a couple of drinks, simplifying the topic, and then you could click the button sub or up and they would go back to academic language. 
that was the moment where I really realized the power of digital. I was so inspired. Um, I saw so many opportunities you cannot just do when you're standing in front of people in a physical way. Um, so many different interactive moments, games. <clears throat> and at this moment, we decided we're not competing with Coursera. We're competing with Game of Thrones. When people come home after work, they're tired, they want some relaxation and maybe entertainment. Uh, they can go to our course that would be as exciting as Game of Thrones. And so this was a long story, but this definitely encapsulates how somebody with architecture background can be so mesmerized with digital opportunities. Since then, I was in the field for over eight, nine years now. I've had my own startup in the Silicon Valley. I've worked with so many different agencies and companies. Um, at this point, I think I consulted and designed for over 60 different companies. And that includes Google and Nike and Alibaba, I had a whole phase of dating apps where I worked on um, Hinge and also helped out with Bumble a little bit. And um, definitely I can say that innovation is something that I thrive in. I really love working with new technologies, whether it's AR, uh, VR, blockchain, which we're going to dive deeper into um, in a second, um, machine learning, um, artificial intelligence, you name it. That's something that I really love. And my take is that I love designing for the usability so that it's easier for people. It's improving their everyday lives. And the, we're leveraging technology to make our lives better, not to make some company more profitable. And that's something that I use as a guideline to uh, grow my career and build better products. Wow, Leah, that is just amazing. I love everything you said, and I'm just so fascinated by your mind for innovation. It is just awesome. That is so, so great. Um, just to, you know, transform how people can learn where you can't do that in a classroom face-to-face -face is so powerful because I'm in the learning business, so I know um, you know, face-to-face -face was the only way people would um, learn, and they thought that was the only way to do it, and we would have customers argue with us, saying, no, we need the instructor here, and mm -hmm. um, and now virtual learning is just a thing that's normal, you know, because of the pandemic, and so it's just really, really transformed, and I think people have realized that there's so much you can do online that can transform your your thought process, that can uh, your experience. Like you said, it's like coming and playing a Game of Thrones. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, I think the interesting thing about it is the point where digital is right now, it's extremely cross-pollinated. So mm -hmm. no matter which industry you work in, um, in there are a lot of trends that are umbrella trends and global, but on the other hand, you can take innovation from fashion or education and apply it to uh, a completely different field. Um, so it's really the cross-pollination in digital is really, really big. And I definitely felt it um, when I worked on one of the best projects in my career. I will take a couple of minutes to talk about it mm -hmm. because it's, it's still mind-blowing to me that I worked on that. <laughs> so um, Toyota is building a whole new city in Japan um, from scratch. And they're doing it because when you're in the business of automotive and uh, mobility, of course, you will be thinking about self-driving, self-driving cars and all the mm -hmm. other devices. But unfortunately, due to regulations at the moment, you cannot test this in the city. You cannot really see how people will behave around this technology fully. We're not talking about, you know, very limited capabilities of self-driving within Tesla. Mm -hmm. And so for Toyota, it was imperative that they found a way to see how people live their daily lives together with um um, auto autonomous driving devices, right? Uh, in a safe way, in a controlled way, in a way that um, allows iteration experimentation. So what they did is they took um, a plot of land that they used to use for one of their uh, plants. And they said, we are going to build a city there and it will be a private city. And because it is a private city, mostly for two to 3000 people right now, for Toyota employees, um, we can really not only look at personal mobility and autonomous mobility, we can look at how we can completely disrupt the way people live their lives in the cities. Uh, think about smart home, 
think about um, how you make any kind of decisions within the city, say voting, how you interact with your neighbors, how you plan your working day, how you grow vegetables in the city, you name it, everything. And so uh, together with an agency called Free Association, we were invited to help them design uh, the design system, but also some of the services in the city. And this is where it blows my mind. Can you believe designing for five years ahead wow. for a city where people live together, cohabitate with robots, and where technology is so respectful? I will remind you, this is not Silicon Valley. This is Japan. And I have massive respect um, to the way that Japanese companies go about innovation is they constantly think about privacy. They think about how can we make sure that we suggest the best possible solutions for people, but also get out of the way. You know, we don't bombard mm -hmm. them with pop-ups. We don't bombard them with, you have to take this route. You're free as a human to take any route you want when you're um, driving or biking, but it's our job to suggest you something that you might've overlooked or something that is in line with your objectives, say, breathe more fresh air or get more exercise, right? Or get somewhere faster. Um, so it's definitely very fascinating working on that. And I think this is where my skill set as a person working with innovation as a product designer, UX designer, um, service designer culminated because everything I knew and worked on up until that point, how people interact with each other, how they interact with technology came together and allow it, allowed us to design some new services and Definitely, that was the moment when I paused for a second and I thought, I only want to work with innovation from now on. And I want to be the person who helps make sure that innovation is ethical and mm -hmm. that it improves our lives instead of making our, us slaves of technology. That is such an interesting project. Wow, I love that. I love thinking ahead, you know, but it's hard to even figure out or fathom where <laughs> technology is going to be in five years. You know, five years ago, I didn't think that I would plan my entire social calendar through text and email and never have to talk to anybody, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's very different and technology plays such a big part of everybody's lives that I think uh, Toyota is doing really some great work in that area. Yeah, absolutely. They're they're fantastic. They're fantastic to work with and their ethics are just amazing. So if anybody's listening, Toyota is a company to work for. That's yeah, for sure. and they are very lucky to have you because <laughs> you are amazing. So that's that's great. What a great um, combination. I think it's going to be, I'd love to follow that project and keep me posted how things are going. That will be fascinating. Um, so what is Web3 and how does it relate to blockchain and the metaverse? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I know when we were first discussing my appearance on this podcast, one mm -hmm. of the biggest things I was so excited about was Web3, didn't come out of nowhere. That was mm -hmm. one of the projects that I also worked on. And at first, as probably a lot of our listeners um, the first thing that probably comes to mind is all of the NFTs that were just everywhere last year. And I wouldn't blame anyone if people are just sick of hearing about them and uh, perceive them as some sort of scams and just are really, really cautious and very confused because definitely the language is extremely <laughs> difficult. But it all really um, is tied to blockchain and I'll explain in, in, in a couple of minutes. Um, but so what happened is I was invited to design an NFT marketplace. And just like probably a lot of your readers, I was very skeptical. I was not interested in all of these JPEGs with monkeys that people were buying and selling for a lot of money. I had a very skeptical approach to the whole field. But now that you know how invested I am in innovation, I couldn't say no uh, to a deeper dive in the field. And so what happened is while I was designing this platform, I started realizing that NFTs are just a technology. So the same way that you look at QR codes right now, you know, you use them to scan and get the menus in restaurants or any other link. NFT is also just a vehicle of transfer. Um, but of, of course, as I mentioned, it all comes back to blockchain and blockchain being the technology that allows for NFTs, for Web3, for cryptocurrencies, and everything else to exist. Um, so of course, blockchain is something that's pretty complex 
to understand. But in its essence, it is a technology, right? It's a ledger that is shared, it's immutable, and it facilitates the process of recording transactions and tracking assets in the business network. Essentially, mm -hmm. it's a virtual computer, right? And mm -hmm. so there are many different blockchains uh, that operate independently. You probably have heard of, of Bitcoin, right? You probably have mm -hmm. heard of Ethereum. There are all computers in the cloud that uh, just allow us to um, write information in a very transparent way. And in a way that you don't have to trust anyone's word, you actually trust the work or the assets that they put behind it. And so um, what's interesting about blockchain and what it is, essentially, it is a chain of blocks of information. <laughs> so every time a new say transaction happens, it's a block that's added to the chain. Um, and the data that is stored inside of the block depends on the type of blockchain. Um, I will not go too deep into it, but I want to say is that the Web3 is what everybody's hearing about. That is Internet that is made possible by blockchain. And in order to better understand it, we have to just for a second go back in time and understand why is it Web3, where is Web1, where is Web2, and how does it all relate together? Um, so if you think about the beginning of the internet and you were there, I was there. <laughs> I know some of our <laughs> listeners who probably were born later did not get to experience Web1, but think about the beginnings of Google, the uh, GeoCities, all of the chat rooms, right? What was your favorite part of Web1 back in the beginning? Just the interactivity, the search, everything. I mean, I was just, you know, I was like hooked. <laughs> <laughs> right? I had a big face in the chat rooms. <laughs> mm, okay, <laughs> yeah, I didn't get the chats initially, yeah. And, and Web1 was kind of a wild west. Uh, there was nobody controlling it. Anybody can do whatever they want it, right? And mm -hmm. it was definitely a big wild west for entrepreneurs. And mm -hmm. this is what gave the beginning to Microsoft. This is what gave the beginning to Google. Anybody could come and build anything they want and no company could say, hey, this is 15% of this is ours now or 20% mm -hmm. ours now, right? That was everyone's. And it was this beautiful time of experimentation and frontier. And I can say even right now, Frontier is definitely on the internet still. So back in Web 1, everything was facilitated by the protocols. So the open web protocols, you know, HTTP, SMTP, and all of them. And people like founders of Google, Larry and Sergey, they were building on top of the protocol, right on top of the web. Mm -hmm. And they built the successful projects and there was the time where anybody could build it. But what started happening is that, of course, that's not very cheap. Um, in order to create your own presence online, uh, you had to um, buy a hosting, buy a domain. You had to build all of it together. It's, it's not cheap. It's time consuming. And back in Web1, the only thing that people could really do is mostly consume. Very rarely you could create something on the Internet and you mm -hmm. had have a specific skill set and money to do it, but most of the time you were just consuming the information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What sets Web 2 apart is that that was the era where big technological companies like Facebook, like Instagram, started allowing us to write on the internet, right? To have to establish our own presence for free. We didn't have to buy hosting. We didn't have to buy domains, right? We could just register on Twitter in three clicks. And there you go. You have your own little website, right? But of mm -hmm. course, that comes with a price where, um, yes, you have this presence there, but everything you create is not really yours. If Twitter decides to shut down tomorrow, everything you ever wrote there, uh, if you don't you know, transfer it overnight, which will take so many <laughs> hours mm -hmm. or yeah. you know, very smart algos and uh, ways to automate it, which is not available to a lot of users, it will just be gone. And it's not only the content you created that would be gone, uh, your network there would be gone. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know where you have the biggest uh, fan following for your podcast, but say it is Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, imagine overnight Instagram changed something about the platform or decided that maybe what you produce is not does not fit its policy. And then you're locked out and you cannot mm -hmm. do anything about it. And this is because all these companies are really the owners of everything you do on that. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And you, apart from making money on ads, you really can't do anything about it. So here comes Web3. And Web3, in the simplest way put, uh, it is really an internet owned by users and builders, mm-hmm. orchestrated with tokens. It is a new concept. Um, the, the concept of token is quite new to Web3. And what it is essentially is a way to um, showcase that you either own something or you have access to something. And I'll get back to it for a second. Um, so right now, we're not in Web3 yet. And this is something that I would like to highlight. Web3 is more an ideology where we're trying to get. We don't, like very few companies are truly Web3, and I wouldn't even call them companies, uh, organizations, projects, um, you name it. We are mostly in Web2.5, and we're trying our best to move to Web3. Um, but so what it actually does is that allows you to truly own everything you've created on a Web3 platform. Um, any post is yours and you can sell it and people can tip you for it. You don't even need advertisers because whenever somebody values the content you create, you can directly do a value ex- exchange with them. You don't have to advertise any kind of product to them. You can just say like, hey, I did this amazing thing and you can support me um, with a tip, with a subscription. And we're seeing a lot of Web2 companies starting to pick up on that, but still it is very limited, such as Substack or uh, Patreon. Again, we are tied to these platforms. Everything we create is stored there. If they change, decide to change their policy, it's going to be changed as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the most beautiful things about Web3, what we're trying to get to, is uh, interoperability, which means that when you connect your wallet to the site, and I'll come back to the wallet aspect in just a second, you uh, plug into a particular site, your whole network and all of your um, content and everything you own. So you basically can pack up and go at any moment together with your whole social network. Imagine I decided to leave uh, Instagram. Um, I would have to start somewhere from scratch. I would have to re-add all my friends again and again. With Mm -hmm. a wallet, I don't have to do it because my network is traveling with me. It's within my wallet. And wallet truly is, 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 is a sense of new Web3 digital identity. Um, so if you think about Web1, we were logging in everywhere with an email and password, and we still have it everywhere as well. But also what Web, Web2 brought to the table is that you can suddenly log in with your email, or you can log in with your Facebook or with your Amazon account, right? Um, so it's simplifying this. In Web3, you're going to be logging in places with your wallet. And as opposed to just, you know, your Facebook account that you're using to log in, your wallet contains uh, everything you own, all of the uh, passes that you have to different places. And it also contains your social graph, which is really beautiful. Uh, And it will make the digital competition way more interesting because when on any kind of platform, say we will have a big tech giant like Meta uh, build a Web3 product. when I'm using that platform, they don't own me or my content. I can just connect my wallet, use it, disconnect my wallet and go. And they don't own anything about me, which is what is beautiful about Web3. And this is why we're saying Web3 is the internet owned by users and builders. This is so amazing. And you've done such a good job really breaking it out. You could tell that you came from the learning environment. <laughs> uh, very good explanations. Now, I do have some questions. So. When you say we are not in Web3 yet, we're working towards getting there, who's the we? It's the technological community. It is definitely a very interesting time to be in the field. And I think this is why it reminds people of the Wild West of Web1 again, is because a lot of people around the world are simultaneously trying to build things so we can arrive at Web3. There are people in India building um, new startups. There are people in Silicon Valley building new startups. There are people in Russia also building new startups. Mm -hmm. Um, And the interesting thing, um, why I really want to contrast Web3 with Web2 is it truly will be open protocol, which means that we're not going to be locked in to one company. And the notion of companies is also very questionable in Web3. So for instance, you can say Bitcoin or Ethereum 
nobody really owns Bitcoin. Nobody really owns Ethereum. What you have, for instance, in the case of Ethereum, they have a foundation, which is a nonprofit. Uh, it's an organization of people whose job is just to make sure that that cloud computer is running, right? And that we're innovating in within the within that blockchain in terms of, uh, say, environmental efficiency and environmental friendliness. I don't know if you heard, but there was a really big crypto event recently, which was the Ethereum merge, where we moved from the um I, I will not go too deep because i feel like it's going to take hours but basically uh we moved the ways that we confirm transactions and confirm actions to a way more environmentally friendly way and mm -hmm. that was often facilitated by a nonprofit foundation but nobody owns ethereum nobody can really shut it down it's up for everyone to use it and it's free yeah and you know your data should be yours your network mm -hmm. should be yours that is just you know, something that, you know, privacy pieces tell us that, you know, our stuff should be ours. So how long do you think it's going to take to get to Web3? <laughs> that's, well, really, that's a really big question because I, and I don't have any answers and I mm -hmm. by no means can say that I'm an expert in the field. There are very, very few experts in the field. That's actually people who are building a very, very deep level, the underlying infrastructure for all of that. Mm -hmm. A mm -hmm. lot of people like me are, we are enthusiasts. We work in the field. I consult in the field, but I always say, look, it's so new. Very few people truly understand mm -hmm. uh, absolutely everything about it, right? And so I can just um, speculate. And I know that in order for a wide adoption to happen, we need to have a trigger event. Look, QR codes were around for so long mm -hmm. and it's covid for us right. to start using them right, right, right. Um, unfortunately there's also a round of scams in the field a lot of scams in the field um you know this is the kind of human nature wherever you see a possibility to um earn some money you mm -hmm. always hop on it and a lot of people who saw an opportunity to just flip different assets buy them for cheaper and sell them for more expensive mm -hmm. they jumped in it and then they just started spamming everyone with information about it i i don't blame anyone of course you would be sick from hearing about nfts <laughs> i am mm -hmm. sick about hearing mm -hmm. from nfts so mm -hmm. i'm super excited about the field um but i would say at least five years to okay to get to where a lot of people are using it. And I wouldn't say that, oh, Web3 will come along and it will completely kill all the other versions of the internet. Look, we still have Wikipedia, mm -hmm. right? It's the simplest mm -hmm. trick list, right? They're very much examples of Web1 and right. they're coexisting with um, Instagram. They're coexisting with TikTok. So we will have a lot of different Web3 products coexisting with Web1 and Web2. And that's totally fine. But I think people will start understanding that being the owner of your data, that being the owner of everything you create is much better than having some other company own it. And so when that um, switch is flipped is when we're going to see a mass migration. Yeah, I, I just wish it was faster because your data is so important to you, your network's so important to you. And, you know, it is a little bit scary how you put it is that, they can shut down anytime and take all of that with them. It's it's owned by them. So we just have to be really careful in the meantime. Yeah. yeah. And they don't even need to shut down. Look at what happened to say MySpace. Right. Lost right. Relevancy, right. 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 And then true. what happens to everything you created there, all right. the hours you and put that's there. years and years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Years and years of information. Yeah. Now how does Web3 relate to small business owners and individuals rather than business? Um, so there are several angles I'd like to take here because I think it's a very, very important question. It mm -hmm. is complex. It takes time to really understand it. It took me, a person who works in innovation, quite a long time to understand it. Um, so I don't blame people who feel intimidated by it. But I would say a preface, everything I say next, is it is very important for uh, people to educate themselves, to get curious about it right and to start thinking long term web3 mm -hmm. might not disrupt your business in the next year but if if you are planning long term then it's definitely very important to look ahead so the first aspect that i want to bring up is 
look at all the kids who are, say, under 15, 16 years old, how they spend their free time. Uh, very often, they are playing a video game, right? Mm -hmm. They are on Fortnite, Candy Crush, Roblox, Sandbox, you name it. And what a lot of parents started noticing is if you don't put uh, particular permissions and parameters in place, your kid would spend hundreds of dollars from your credit card if it's attached to a game, mm -hmm. right? That's definitely a big flag where everybody mm -hmm. says, hey, parents, pay attention, um, remove your cards or you know, put permissions in place. Mm -hmm. so why is that happening? What are, what are the kids spending money on? They are spending money on digital assets, on different outfits for their characters, different gear, different say, new tools in the game, new skins. All of these things are digital assets. They don't have a physical representation in a physical world. And this is an absolute norm for kids this age to see value in something that doesn't have a physical representation. Uh, so what will happen when they grow up and they are at the age of, you know, consumption and spending for them, it would be as natural to spend $5,000 on a new computer or whatever would be, you know, that price back then, maybe it would be cheaper or $3,000 and that doesn't matter. And on a digital asset, something that only exists online which is mm -hmm. mind blowing for us right now, but for them, it will be completely, completely natural. So that would open up a new market, new behaviors, and this whole market of intangible goods that right now is mostly represented by NFTs. But think about it, uh, a website domain is also a digital asset. Mm -hmm. You don't have a representation of it in real life. I'll give you another example. Um, a blue check mark on any social media uh -huh. is a sign of status that costs a lot of money, really, if you, you know, trans, uh, translate its value, but it doesn't have a representation in real life. It's truly a digital asset. So we are really moving into this whole new world um, and a marketplace of selling intangible goods that facilitate value online that facilitate access, facilitate status, and so many more things. So that is something to keep in mind. You think that, oh, these 15-year-olds are going to grow up. It's going to be so long, but you will blink. And this is a whole new market that you've missed if you don't start thinking about it right now. So true. <laughs> and, then, and then let's start looking at a little bit more kind of closer horizon in, term, in terms of what Web3 can facilitate in the next few years for businesses. On one end, it's streamlined collaboration. Through the use of applications such as smart contracts, the process of working with other parties can become more efficient. And in certain situations, it can provide the foundation of trust between two collaborators that never work together. So I'll pause for a second and talk about smart contracts. Mm -hmm. Smart contracts is a self-executing mechanism that's built on top of any kind of uh, token. So uh, to give you an example, if you have observed NFTs being resold right now, so say an artist has created a beautiful piece, a digital artwork, and they minted it as a non-fungible token, which is what NFT stands for. Uh, within each NFT, there is a small, um, small program, like a computer program, it's embedded in it, that has a smart contract. And if you have ever heard of people reselling NFTs, so you bought it, say, for 0.1 Ethereum, and then you resold it for 0.3 Ethereum, what is interesting about it is that the artist gets a percentage of that sale. So every time their NFT is resold, every single time, they get a percentage from that sale. Mm. And that is executed by a smart contract. Now imagine we take that technology uh, from the art world and we apply it to being, a, being a, a small business owner. How many times do you sign contracts with suppliers, providers, freelancers? There are always these clauses, say, if you don't deliver by this date, then you pay a fee. If the project doesn't go through, then there's this fee. Oh, you have to be paid by this date, right? 
if in order to enforce all of this right now, you of course have to negotiate, you have to talk about it, but sometimes people engage lawyers. A mm-hmm. lot of middlemen that cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Imagine we leverage the smart contract technology. We didn't we wouldn't need all this middlemen. Automatically, 31st rolls over and you just get paid because this mm-hmm. is self-executing smart contract. The project doesn't go through automatically because this is the clause, you get 15% for the project kill fee, etc. So it's really automating a lot of these um purely logistical aspects of collaborating with each other. And of course, um, other benefits that blockchain brings to the table is improved transparency, because blockchain provides an open ledger of dealings, leading to just, you know, everybody knowing what is happening or has happened. Anybody can access uh, all the data on the blockchain. Easier cross-border dealings. So one of the advantages of cryptocurrencies comes from its ability to skip the borders. Um, and it's always a lot of hassle and fees sending funds to another country. Um, a good example was, unfortunately, there's a war in Ukraine and, you know, it's really devastating and it's really hard to send money to nonprofits and organizations that need it there. And only the cryptocurrency was allowing for these funds to get across the border in seconds, something mm-hmm. that banks would take weeks to do or even couldn't do because you know now the bank system is completely broken because of all the sanctions so Mm -hmm. this technology is truly uh disruptive it truly brings completely new benefits and this is why everybody's so excited about it that is just so fascinating wow i've learned so much in this call (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know it really begins to bring connected data you know because data Everybody has data, but they're not connected. So at any one given time, you don't know what the status of anything is if you have multiple partners. This mm-hmm. gives you the ability to have a lens into that entire process, which I think is going to be huge from from business standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And if we think about the, the problems that blockchain is solving in the nearest future, it is the issues of trust and transparency and cutting out the middleman and, and so right. much more. Right. No, so true. So, you know, our podcast is focused on bridging the culture, pay and employment gap for women. And what are you seeing in the industry today from your lens? Oh, this is such a loaded question. <laughs> um, Definitely, um, I think I have a very interesting perspective being an independent. So mm-hmm. I have been freelancing, contracting, um, kind of running my own company for um, several years now. I think it's over five years. Never count. <laughs> but mm-hmm. what I'm noticing is there are definitely pros and cons um, to that particular approach. Uh, pros are very powerful. And that's the reason why I have been independent all this year. First of all, you can choose what are you working on, who you're working with, and you can always limit your engagements. So this is what allowed me to have so many different amazing clients and collaborate with so many different agencies and creatives is because my ch- my choice was I want to work on a contract basis on a pro- on a projects that are less than a year long, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. this is not something that you can choose when you work for someone in-house. Mm-hmm. Right. projects and you know this is what you're working on that's it uh, I can also dictate how much I'm making I can dictate mm-hmm. when I take holidays I can mm-hmm. dictate how I'm positioning myself and so many more things so this has all been absolutely wonderful and this is why I'm working in the field and I can also say that this is what allowed me pursue to pursue my passion because the reason why I'm so fired up about web3 I remember when I first heard about it and when I first did my deep deep dive and really understood all these underlying philosophies, I got so excited. Mm-hmm. I almost, for, for a few months, I lost interest in anything else because all I wanted to work on was blockchain, crypto, and Web3. And luckily, mm-hmm. being an independent, I was able to have uh, four different clients in that field and focus That's... on that for a little bit. So it definitely allows you to, to follow your passion. Now, let's talk about the other side, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is... Being an independent does not come with a fancy title. Um, I can almost tell you, I can take head of design from many different agencies and say, look, I bet you I know more than you. <laughs> I have more experience than you. 
but they have a fancier title. Therefore, with their fancy title of how to design at X, they get invited to conferences more, they get approached by recruiters more, they get just more opportunities. And it's definitely not reflecting of their uh, skill set. Mm-hmm. You probably have heard of a lot of people who have been sitting in a very cozy way um, in their titles and, you know, really not progressing over the years. You yep. know, a lot of these yep. people. Yep. They, they're just sitting in their office, they make decisions, they haven't touched a design tool or any other tool of trade for a very long time. They probably mm-hmm. don't know new software. And their, um, the way they manage people is also quite, you know, um, why, how would I put it? You know, they just go with archaic, maybe archaic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're just when you're very comfortable, you're in one company for so many years, what stimulates your growth? Right. What, you know, what inspires you? <laughs> Nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not talking about everyone. I'm talking about certain instances that everybody knows of, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Um, but unfortunately, the title has been a huge obstacle as an independent. You, you cannot bring to the table saying like, oh, I'm head of this. And people instantly know what you're able to do. As an independent, you have to show uh, your knowledge, show your client portfolio, show so mm-hmm. much more. And even then, very often is not enough. Now, and prove yourself. Now, on top of it, being an immigrant woman, where English is your second language, um, I've been doing business in English for many years now. However, still, you can hear my accent. That definitely plays a role. Um, looking young. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm 33, yet I look quite young. Mm-hmm. And people judge by the looks. And I know for a fact that I've been low-balled for those reasons alone compared yes. to a man on a potential uh, project and contract. Um, and it's still frustrating. You know, we're, we're yeah. in 2022, almost in 2023. Right. I think this should be a meritocracy. You should be judged about what you know and what you're able to do and your experience and what value you bring to the table and ability to carry responsibility for your decisions and actions and manage people. Yet we're still judged by by the you know just by the looks mm-hmm. and by the first impressions mm-hmm. and I wouldn't say that you know I wouldn't blame anyone in particular because you know this is just we're all part of the system but what happens is because people are very busy nobody has time to look deep mm-hmm. uh, on their first you know encounter and this is something that we need to solve for how can we allow for people who are extremely busy and are decision makers in terms of where will a role go, who will be hired, who will get the contract, right? How with their busy schedules, can we allow them in just a half an hour to really see someone for who they are? Um, right. We don't have those tools yet. And that's something that hopefully maybe some of your listeners will work on. Maybe there's an algorithm or a program that can <laughs> dive deep and give them the highlights of this person's skill sets, you know, <laughs> Absolutely. instead of using judgment, you know, just by looking at something or not going deep. And I say that, you know, it's like, it's so true that first impressions are very important, but you really need to dive deeper to understand the skill set to know if this person's qualified. And women have to prove themselves over and over and over again to ensure that their voice is heard, you know, whereas maybe a, a man's resume just goes a lot further because they just see it and say, yes, this is right. And because very often they spend more time on networking than mm-hmm. actually doing the work. Right. right, very true, very true. So that's a really important um, focus area that, that you brought out that's very different from a lot of people, and I really like it. It's really good for us to be able to dig deeper into our projects and our skill set to know that we are just as qualified, if not more, than our counterparts. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very neat. So as you look back on your career, is there anything that you wish you had known about leading a tech business that you know now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot. Is, right. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely a lot. Um, but I will say this one thing that maybe a lot of people who are um, 
not pursuing their passion quite yet. Um, maybe this is something that they don't realize. So there's a difference of working on something that makes you money, something that is in demand versus working on your passion. And select few people are very lucky to be able to work on their passion and that brings them money. And I think more and more people should be doing that and switching to truly uh, things that get them fired up, things that give them a reason to wake up every morning, right? And so I really, really love technology. I really love innovation. That's something that I really enjoyed working on, but that's not something that really um, got me fired up every morning necessarily. You know, I got fired up to say, oh, I can get surf today or I can travel today, right? <laughs> There's so many things in life that really get me very energized and I enjoy my work but I could live without my work, right? Mm -hmm. And then one day I encountered Web3 and I got so passionate about it. Mm -hmm. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop, you know, like everything else went into the background. And that's, that's kind of a great in indicator of true passion. Um, and when you switch to work on your true passion, especially if you're new in the, that particular field, what you start observing is that you used to have people come to you because you're known in the field and you have this certain reputation. Um, and I had that reputation in digital and digital innovation. And then suddenly I'm specifically very, very focused only on Web3. And this is when you start going to people and you start selling um, your offers. And that's a very different experience. Uh, and it's a very hard experience. So anybody who's starting a business from scratch or switch into a new field will, will feel it. Going from, oh, I can do this and everybody's coming to you with an ask to, oh, now I'm going to people with proposals, suggestions, <laughs> et cetera, and, and trying to sell. It's definitely psychologically a very tough thing. And that's something that people need to prepare for. But I don't regret it. I truly, really love, and it's a payoff that you take in the beginning before you get established in the field to do the work in this specific field that gets you fired up. But nobody's really prepared for it. So that's one thing that I would encourage everybody who's looking to switch careers or start their own business to look into is the psychological aspect of switching from being the one who's being asked to being the one who is asking. That's great. And follow your passion. That is so important. Following your passion, the money will come. I believe that very strongly because yep. you just, you know, give it your heart and soul and it does not feel like work. So, yeah, very important. No, that's great. So, Leo, where's the where's your most favorite place that you've traveled to and why? <laughs> um, I was very surprised <laughs> by this question when you first sent it to me. I was like, oh, it's a little selfish. It's a little selfish because I love to travel. It's one of my passions. And this way I get all new places that I can put on my list. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know that I live in Hawaii, so mm -hmm. I'm very biased about it. I, I came here for three months and then I ended up staying for <laughs> way longer. Wow. So, that's definitely one of my favorite places, but also in the spirit of just cultural admiration for something that's completely exceptional and really makes this country stand apart. I will, I will repeat myself and say Japan. Mm. I think one of the super interesting um, cultural aspects that I have observed there, which is also very translatable to my work with technology, is this notion of omotenashi, which means invisible service. It is the level of care and hospitality that is not done for tips or for show. It is done, first of all, completely in an invisible manner. A service that's performed well is a service that you haven't seen being performed. Mm -hmm. uh, you're sitting at a restaurant and you drank all your water and you turn around and suddenly your glass is full of water mm -hmm. again. You don't know how it happened. Nobody mm -hmm. asked move nobody disturbed you nobody interrupted your conversation and that just happened right mm -hmm. and i know the japanese really take pride in that completely selfless loving hospitality oh, i love that so when i see that it's also something that i would like to translate to how technology helps us in daily lives that service should be invisible it shouldn't be intrusive it shouldn't be mm -hmm. distractive we shouldn't be bombarded by notifications that you know break our flow it mm -hmm. should be there when we need it and it shouldn't be there when we don't. Um, and that's what I truly believe in. No, that's great. Have you been to Japan? 
Yes. Okay, <laughs> and great. I just heard it opened up again. So it's I'm just opening excited. up. Yeah, I just heard that like middle of October or something, maybe October 11th. So yeah, that's exciting. That's great. That's going to have to go on my list. I love this invisible service because I'm a very, very, very passionate about outrageous customer service. And how do we do that? This is one of the ways. It's just amazing. I love that. So, Leah, could you share with our listeners how they can get a hold of you? Definitely. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Leah Safina. You'll see my name in the name of this podcast. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Imuza, which is I-M-U-Z-Z-A. Once again, it's I-M-U-Z-Z-A. And you'll probably encounter me on Web3 and different conferences. So stay tuned. <laughs> I am also planning to launch some educational events. I'm actually doing my first one this week. I'm not sure the podcast, um, I think the podcast will not be out yet by then. But right. you can always follow um, me on LinkedIn. And this is the best place to learn all, all about my workshops. I do Web3 one-on-one workshops for people to really get a deeper understanding of the field. I do specific workshops tailored to strategists and entrepreneurs and decision, maker, decision makers in business. So stay tuned for that. That's awesome. Leah, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. You're very <laughs> impressive you. and you, you've done such a great job and your career is just flourishing and it's just, it makes me so proud to have you on the show. So thank <laughs> oh, you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for your amazing questions. It was truly a blast exploring the field with you. Great. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Tech in the Right Direction. Please take a minute to subscribe or follow so that you never miss an episode. Also, don't forget to like, share, and comment. Thank you. See you next week. From IT skill enhancements to end user adoption training, Directions Training is your resource to help optimize the effectiveness of your technology investments. Over half a million students have taken advantage of our wide selection of technology and business training solutions covering the most popular applications today, such as Microsoft 365, Azure, Windows 10, and more. As a podcast listener, we invite you to take advantage of an exclusive offer. Receive 30 days of free access to our Microsoft official curriculum on-demand courses for IT professionals or end users. Visit us at www.directionstraining.com slash podcast to claim this offer today. Hurry, this offer is only available for a limited time. Success is a journey. Ask for directions.